Hello and welcome to Rewildology, the nature podcast that explores the human side of conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Today's episode is volume two of the show's wildest hit series. After listening to this chat when it originally aired in September 2022, many of you, seriously, many of you, reached out to tell me that you had a totally new perspective on coexistence, me included. I'd easily classify this episode as the most philosophical conversation the show has released yet, and it had to be included in the Wildest Hits series. All right, everyone, please enjoy. Where is the one place in Europe that you most want to see? Possibly you routinely daydream about visiting Paris to take in the sights and indulge in some incredible French cuisine. Maybe you're a downhill skier and dream of one day hitting the Alps. Or perhaps your goal is to see the open Scottish Highlands with its rolling hills and deep history. Keeping your dream European vacation in mind, tell me, where do large carnivores fit into this stunning image? It might be difficult to picture creatures like wolves, bears, and lynx as parts of the European wildlife narrative, but let me tell you, they are there. And today we are going to meet a man that's dedicated his career to finding a way to coexist with these predators. To take us on a journey through coexistence and the evolving philosophy of conservation, in this episode, we're sitting down with John Linnell, PhD, Senior Researcher Scientist and Professor at the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. John grew up in the area of Jacques Cousteau and dreamed of one day living an adventurous life out in nature. For his PhD, John left Ireland to study Norway's roe deer, and in doing so, came to admire the large carnivores that preyed upon the species. John then shifted his work to resolving human-predator conflict and helping communities to coexist with the carnivores around them. John is so knowledgeable about what he does that he's a member of the IUCN SSC Human Wildlife Conflict and Coexistence Specialist Group and the IUCN Large Carnivore Initiative for Europe Specialist Group, aka John knows what he's talking about. <laughs> John and I have one of the most philosophical conversations I've had yet on the show. We explore large carnivores history across the European continent using the lynx as a model species, what the term coexistence means to him, where the rewilding Europe initiative fits into the carnivore restoration narrative, and what conservation actually means in 2022. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to share this episode with a friend or post it on your Instagram stories and tag Rewildology. Also, head on over to the revamped website to check out the new resources section. And while you're there, also sign up for the Rewildology newsletter to stay up to date on the latest episode, interesting articles that we find from across the field and other fun shenanigans. All right, friends, here is my conversation with John. Hi, John. Thank you so much for calling in from the other side of the world right now. I'm so <laughs> excited for our conversation and to get into this species in this area that's so special and so unique. So let's actually start from square one and take okay. a journey through time. When did you know that you wanted to study wildlife and how did you get to where you are today? Wow. 
Well, I guess like the many kids of my generation, I grew up watching TV. You know, all of us had like David Attenborough on television. We had Jacques Cousteau. So I guess originally, I guess I kind of wanted to be like a second Jacques Cousteau. You know, he always had these cool toys. You know, he had a boat, he had helicopters, and he had, you know, Zodiacs and Aqualungs, and a really cool a theme tune, you know, to the, the TV program. You know, it's this song, High Calypso by John Denver or something. And the whole thing just seemed so totally cool. You know, and that's really kind of what I wanted to be, was like to be a second one of those. And I grew up by the sea, so that whole kind of marine thing seemed sort of kind of logical. And then somewhere, so I guess this kind of childhood thing kind of got me interested in the idea of studying zoology. And then somewhere during kind of university, it kind of somehow the marine thing got a bit lost. You know, I, was, I actually did my scuba diving thing and everything, but then somewhere, somehow I just got sucked into the terrestrial realm. And ever since then, I've been kind of stuck on land, actually working on things on land. So. Part of the childhood thing stayed, you know, they're focusing on wildlife, but the marine bit has somehow disappeared somewhere on the way. So then how did you get to Norway? Where did that come in your journey? Yeah, well, so I took my bachelor's degree in Ireland, which is where I lived then. And then at the end of a bachelor's time, you know, every student sits down and you write application letters. You know, and this was in the days when you actually physically wrote letters, you know, kind of, it wasn't like the email world. This was actually, you know, letter printed out, sign it, put a stamp on it, stick it in the envelope and wait weeks, months, you know, for answers. So I guess in that period, I think I must have written that probably between 50 and 100 different applications. Oh my gosh. You know, I applied for everything possible, you know, jobs and PhD positions and volunteer positions. And, you know, you'd apply for everything. And in the middle of all this, I got offered a nine months scholarship to go to Norway. And, you know, at the time I said, Norway, yeah, that sounds great. And then thinking, well, which one's Norway? Is that the one on the right or the one on the left? You know, with like Sweden, Norway, you know, it's all up there somewhere, right? You know, and yeah, Norway, ah, that's the one, that's not ABBA, no, that's AHA, ah, right, okay, no, ABBA, Sweden, Norway's AHA. So after having kind of found out kind of where it was, I came here for nine months. It was like one of these sort of cultural exchange on scholarships. They, they tend to be quite kind of low-hanging fruits. And that was 33 years ago. Wow, that's a, such an incredible time. Obviously, you fell in love because you're still up there. Well, I, I think that's everyone's kind of experience. That it's, no, it's very difficult to plan any type of career in academia or mm. conservation. You know, you can have a sort of a wish list, but ultimately, you just basically have to follow serendipity. You know, chances appear and you have to take them. And I think hardly anyone probably ends up working in the place which they plan to or with the things that they plan to. You just have to literally kind of go with the flow and see where it takes you. And yeah, this is where it took me. Amen. Same here. I've been in Colorado for seven years and it was complete serendipity that just took us here out of out of the blue. And it's making making it work, which is awesome. So let's. Let's get back to then what your journey was. How then did you transition into your current study path, which is like human coexistence with predators in Europe? How did that specialty come to be? Have you always been attracted to this group of animals or where did this love come from? 
So I guess the whole thing started with deer. That somehow on the way, deer appeared to me as sort of a really interesting group of, of animals. And living in Ireland, can a red deer, can, a, can, a, can your elk, were like the biggest large mammal that we had on land. And at least in sort of a British, Irish cultural context, can a red deer sort of have a very iconic status? You know, like they're big, then they have a whole cultural history around them. And I guess that's where my original plan was actually going to be, was actually to maybe kind of work on red deer. So I, I had like a whole kind of PhD plan in the back of my head and kind of moving to Norway. Well, I thought that could be like a first step in moving into red deer. But then things again got a bit confused and rather than working on red deer, I started working on roe deer, which are like, you know, a much, much smaller thing. They are actually the original um, species the Bambi is modeled on. Oh, really? Now, like, huh. So Bambi is actually written by um, a Swiss, a German, back in the 1930s. And it was actually built around Canarodia. But Disney, when they transferred it to the US, turned Bambi into a white-tailed deer. But actually... As they do with everything. Bambi was a rodeo. <laughs> and this kind of, it was basically an opportunity which appeared to work on a project. And I actually spent, kind of, what, five years working on my PhD, almost entirely on a very small island just doing totally nerdy kind of deer studies, you know, basically the life of Bambi, you know, what Bambi lives from, the life and death of Bambi and Bambi behavior. And I ended up actually having a PhD totally built around Bambi. And this was completely removed from any sort of applied context. You know, this was like the almost a dream kind of PhD time when you're just studying an animal, you're asking all sorts of esoteric questions and you just have fun answering them, collecting data and just spending time in the field. And it's all very idyllic. And our study site at the time was like an island. It was like a very nice, mild climate. There was no predators. It was sort of a fairly lush sort of you know, agricultural forest landscape. And to, to Erodia, this is as close to heaven as you get. You know, it's green, there's food, there's not much snow in winter, there's nothing to eat you, there's no hunting going on. And basically this was like rodeo heaven. And then after this kind of time, we began asking, well, okay, we studied heaven, but what does rodeo hell actually look like? You know, because this heaven was not a kind of representative slice of, you know, Bambi habitat. So then we'd been hatching on it, up this idea to work in a study site where you suddenly had everything which kind of rodeo don't like. And that would be really strong winters. It would be hunting from hunt, and then also the presence of predators. And we started to work in a study site on mainland Norway where you had kind of lynx and you had red foxes and hunting and these really heavy winters. So it was really on the edge. I know this was a total opposite, this total extreme. This was like the, the roadier hell, you know, like <laughs> the white hell, basically. So they came from the green heaven, our first site, and this other site was literally the white hell. And, but over time, when we added links into the equation, it sort of drifted from a study where we had roadier in the focus and links as one of the factors influencing it to a situation where we were interested in links itself. And the predator began to take much more center stage in our studies. 
And then as soon as you start getting invested in predators in the real world, you suddenly end up having to deal with all of the complexity of their relationship with people. You know, all of the opinions, the strong opinions, the, the conflicts, the passions appear. So working on deer, you know, everyone likes them. They're cute, they're kind of cuddly, and you don't get these strong emotions. You work on predators and everything becomes incredibly polarized. And suddenly you're catapulted from this kind of scientific naivety of collecting data and just asking nice little nerdy science questions into this real, you know, socio-political mess of large predator kind of conservation. Where you've been hooked ever since. <laughs> Where I have somehow been hooked ever yes. since. <laughs> Occasionally, <laughs> I kind of get to escape into a little kind of nerdy science question, but certainly the complexity and the kind of reality of large predator kind of conservation certainly has dominated kind of my life ever since, yes. Mm. Yes. And so to help all of us listening really understand what has happened with predators across the European landscape, let's start big picture and explore the history. So I think most of us listening have an idea of what happened to wolves and lynx and bears, but we don't exactly have context. Could you possibly take us through a history of what's happened with these predators? And then we could start really getting into the last what, 50 years where things are starting to change. So yeah, please enlighten us of the journey of the predator in Europe. <laughs> wow. Well, the, 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 the history is fairly simple, is that pretty much ever since kind of humans began to kind of domesticate livestock, we've basically been fighting a war against large predators. Now, we basically view them as competition for, for prey species, but mainly they have been viewed as a pest because of their depredation on livestock. Now, if, if we're going to all of the trouble to raise sheep and cattle and goats, we really don't like it if these animals come and kill our animals. And for maybe the last, what, maybe three, four, five thousand years, even longer, can the Europeans have been mainly engaged in a war against predators using ever increasingly complicated and advanced kind of techniques. So every advancement in technology was immediately integrated into this kind of persecution of predators. You know, early on, hunting was incredibly hard. You know, if you're hunting like bears with spears and bows and arrows, it's not easy. And I guess our impact on them was kind of quite low. But then things really advanced when we started to get gunpowder, when the weapons became more advanced, and especially when poisons became more available. But we've also used all sorts of other techniques like traps of different types, kind of pitfall traps and these metal, you know, leg hole traps and all sorts of killing traps. And, you know, human ingenuity is kind of quite amazing. And we really utilize that ingenuity to persecute carnivores. So by the time that we got to the you know the early 20th century we had really pushed them back to the edges of europe like ireland where i grew up we were able to exterminate wolves in around the 1600s or 1700s you know so it wow. really goes back quite far right like in in britain the bears were probably exterminated probably in roman times you know going back maybe 2000 years wow so the islands were easier the mainland can took longer but certainly, 
like the Norse and Central Europe were very uh, efficient in their extermination campaigns. They were highly organized. There were bounties in place. You know, kind of just in Norway, the church had bounties in place from the 1700s. And then like in Norway in 1846, there was suddenly a government bounty. So like is a law that was called the law on the extermination of large carnivores, which meant that the state was actually putting up money to incentivize people to get out there and kill wolves, bears, lynx, and wolverines using every technique. So let's say by 1920, 1930, then everything was really at a, a rock bottom. You know, we had nearly pushed these animals out to the real edges of the continent. Wow. Yes. That's I I had no clue that it actually went back that far, maybe even possibly to Roman times. And and it's crazy having seen what's also going on in the U.S., like a lot of similarities that your the extermination that happened on the European continent. I was also thinking about the similarities that's also happened on the U.S., like getting to the point where there was like federal almost mandates, especially on the Native American people, like they had to actually bring a certain number of predators to the government and all kinds of extermination techniques, especially on the wolves. So, wow, it sounds like there's a lot of parallels there. Oh, sure. but, like we exported all of these kind of values and techniques to the new world. You know, so it was yes. just sort of part of the cultural baggage that we took along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's actually explore. I think maybe this species will be perfect to really demonstrate what happened and then maybe bringing back and then coexisting today. So that is the Eurasian lynx, which is one of your specialties. So... First, could you actually teach us about this lynx? Because we're not talking about bobcats or Canadian lynx. We're talking about Eurasian lynx, and they are very different. So please, first, teach us about these amazing cats, and then what is their story in Europe? Well, our lynx, okay, so in Europe, we actually have two species of lynx. We have the Iberian lynx, and we have the Eurasian lynx. So the Iberian lynx is only found in South Spain and Portugal. And broadly speaking, I guess it's very similar to like a, a bobcat in a way, or perhaps more actually to the Canadian lynx in a way. Mm. It was a highly specialized kind of predator feeding on kind of rabbits as its main prey. But then we have the, kind of, the Eurasian lynx. And this was originally found all across kind of Central and Northern Europe and all across Eastern Europe and actually Eurasia. So in the past, it went all the way from the Atlantic to the Pacific coast. Wow. And everywhere from kind of Siberia in the north, right down to the Himalayas in the south and the deserts of Central Asia. So it has an incredible kind of distribution across kind of the entire kind of Eurasian landmass. And like in weight, like an adult weighs around 20 kilos or something, you know, so it's not really much bigger than your lynx. But in its head, it's a totally different beast. You know, it can, the original lynx sinks. It's a mountain lion. Yeah. You know, it sort of it it basically has an ecology which is built around feeding on large ungulates like deer. So like it's no problem for like a lynx weighing twenty kilos to feed on a or, or kill a a roe deer weighing thirty kilos or even a young red deer maybe weighing 40, 50 kilos. Wow. In in some cases, we've had them quite often kind of killing reindeer your caribou and we've even had a case of a yearling moose being killed by a lynx 
And then Stop you really it. have to imagine the scene, you know, there's little, you know, 20 kilo cat, you know, kind of looking off at the moose and saying, you know, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and actually getting up there and taking the bite on the throat and bringing it down. So they're tough little creatures, you know, they really have this can-do attitude. And like, can they also live a, a lifestyle which is very kind of, kind of similar to like a mountain lion. They have these big home ranges, you know, anything from like a couple of hundred square kilometers to a few thousand square kilometers each. No, so it really is not this kind of bunny-killing, wimpy, bobcat, Canadian lynxing. You know, this is a, a big predator scaled down into a slightly smaller size. Awesome. And did they also see heavy persecution through getting rid of all the predators? And then on that to maybe recently, what's mm -hmm. what's the recent story with them? Yeah, so I think historically the kind of Eurasian lynx never quite got the same level of kind of hatred that was focused on wolves and bears. That kind of in in our cultural history, lynx are pretty much invisible. You know, there's no folk tales, there's no legends, there's hardly any proverbs about them. You rarely find them depicted in art. You know, I think I just know of a handful of you know older medieval manuscripts which actually have a picture of a lynx. Whereas like the cultural signature of lynx of wolves and bears is everywhere. You know. So lynx were never really hated in the same way. I think they were more the sort of collateral damage, in a way, of this war on bears and wolves. But the other thing is that they're a little bit less adaptable in their kind of behavior, in that they don't kind of, like, bears can live on vegetation, right? They can live on berries and that kind of stuff and carrion. And wolves can live on anything, you know, wolves can live on livestock, they can live on garbage, you know, they can really survive. And if you look back in history, like I say, especially up to the middle to the end of the 19th century, the human impact on our landscape was total, right? You now we've cleared most of our forests, we had massive densities of livestock, we had pretty much eradicated most of the wild prey species, or like they were also really pushed to the edge. So for lynx, this loss of habitat and loss of wild prey, I think, had a very strong indirect effect on them. Whereas, like, the wolves and bears can survive long after the, the habitat's gone. You know, like, a wolf basically doesn't need habitat, you know, as long as it can find some livestock or some garbage to eat, they can survive anything. But lynx, I think, were much more sensitive to the wider habitat changes. But also, they were certainly directly persecuted as well, yes, but not with the same level of kind of motivation. So for them, the probably their recovery started maybe already in the late 19th century, not kind of directly, but because the European landscape began changing in the end of the 19th century, that we had this good fortune for us in a way of being able to have a pressure release by sending so many people to the new world. You know, this movement of people off the landscape took pressure off the land. And there's also sort of a strategic understanding in Europe that we needed to get a forest back. We needed mm. timber, you know, both for the properties of preventing avalanches and floods and erosion, but also because timber was a strategic resource in a military context. So we began regrowing a forest that we had less people on the land and we needed timber. So we started planting trees. And then the hunters also began to become a stronger voice and began to become very active in restoring the wild prey species. 
So like from the late 19th century to the early early 20th century, the hunters began to try to foster a recovery of roe deer and red deer and other species. So this led to the beginnings of the kind of recovery of lynx habitat. The, the preconditions which they would need to come back began to come back a long time ago, long before anyone even began thinking about kind of predator conservation. And then in about the 1970s, some very early reintroduction projects started off. So I think kind of the first lynx kind of reintroduction was actually in the former kind of Yugoslavia in 1970. 1972, when the Yugoslav Hunting Federation decided that they wanted to actually bring back lynx. So they captured some lynx from the Carpathian Mountains and they were kind of translocated to kind of what is now Slovenia and Croatia and they were kind of released. And that kind of rapidly grew into a, a population that persists today. And then starting in about the, the 1980s, the Swiss began a whole series of kind of reintroductions. And since then, there's probably between maybe 10 to 20 different kind of reintroduction projects, depending on how you count them, is mainly in Central Europe, in like France, Italy, Austria, Germany, and Poland, who've all been trying to bring backlinks into, into those landscapes. At the same time, in Northern Europe, the kind of changing, more conservation-friendly legislation, which began to appear in the 1970s, also led to a foundation for natural expansion of links. So that now in like Norway, Sweden, Finland, other countries, you have also much larger populations which are spread by themselves. So basically you have this kind of double picture that the populations in Northern and Eastern Europe have expanded naturally because of the improved kind of legislation. And then the populations in Central Europe have been largely brought back through reintroductions. Wow, so there's a great mix there. I I love that story too, how it's this species was able to come back on its own and then also we helped it along the way. And I think next, have you seen much conflict in these areas between maybe local people and the areas that the Eurasian lynx have either naturally come back or been reintroduced? Are you seeing any differences in maybe the scenario in which they were brought back? Or is everybody pretty neutral or are they not neutral? What are you seeing with people who live with the lynx? I guess it's highly unvariable that in landscapes like so in places where lynx have had a continual presence, like, for example, in the Carpathian Mountains, there they've always had wolf and bear as well. So in any landscape where you have kind of wolf and bear, 99.9% .9 of the focus will be on wolf and bear. Mm. And the lynx just, you know, lives a very quiet, sort of subtle, invisible life in the, in the background, right? when all humans can focus all their emotional focus on the bigger species. In the places where you bring them back, it's very mixed. In this initial introduction into the, kind of the former Yugoslavia, there was very low conflict because it was the hunters who had initiated the whole thing. They wanted to have them back. I think about maybe 10 years after the reintroduction, they began some highly regulated hunting. And there was very little conflict around it. You know, there was very little kind of livestock production to have any conflict with. And the hunters are the ones who maybe in theory might feel a conflict for hunting the ungulates, 
But because they also could hunt lynx, then, well, they lost a little bit of deer, but they gained a lynx hunt, so they were happy in balance. Mm. In other places, though, it's much more mixed. And in Switzerland and France especially, lynx began to kill livestock. That you have these kind of free-ranging livestock in the alpine pastures, and then you have basically unattended sheep. And these are landscapes which had lost wolves and bears too. So they were totally unused to having any predator on the landscape. And maybe it had a hundred years to kind of forget how it was to live in the presence of large predators. And then, of course, things come and occasionally they do kill sheep. And suddenly this immediately sparks off this very strong kind of negative reaction. So same thing happens in kind of Norway, that we also have this kind of unattended sheep who are grazing in, in forests and mountains, like a open range kind of ranching system. And their lynx also do kill sheep and the conflicts have been very high. So in general, in the absence of exposed sheep, lynx are able to live fairly subtle, quiet lives without too many extremes. But certainly when you have livestock, then the issues emerge, yes. And you do see some places also where hunters react negatively. So, for example, in some of the German sites where lynx have been reintroduced, mainly by conservationists, then you often see that local hunters feel that there is a kind of going to be more competition for prey, mm. or they fear that there will be restrictions coming in place for their activities. And you can get some kind of relatively polarized kind of conflicts around links as well. But they never get to the same temperature as the same conflicts which you have, say, with wolves and bears. Yeah, I definitely see a lot of parallels with that. When you mentioned that, especially on the landscapes where predators were taking off and then reintroduced, there was much more conflict because it seems that people forgot how to live with these predators. And... I've also seen and heard that pretty much that exact same story here in the United States. So it's just really interesting to hear the parallels between what you've seen and what you've experienced and here all the way on the other side of the world. So it's just, I don't know, it's just really interesting that we are both experiencing and seeing some very similar stories for completely different, well, not completely different species, but different in that sense. And I think it's just basically like a, a human psychology thing is that we always find change to be something difficult to handle, mm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, and especially if it's change kind of coming from the outside. So like if somebody else has induced change upon your self or your livelihood or your way of being or your your neighborhood, then you automatically, I think, kind of have a bit of a kind of kickback feeling to it. And you also just have to acclimatize the things. Like it's incredible the type of things that people adapt to, right? The things that we take for granted if we are used to them. But then suddenly if we move to a different situation, suddenly we think, my God, it's impossible. You know, how do you live with this? How do you, you tolerate this? And people say, well, this is normal. So what we define as normal can cover an incredible range of different things. But it just takes time to adjust to a new normal. And living with kind of larger kind of predators, it's a big change. You know, you have to make technical changes to how you work. You have to make mental changes. You know, kind of going for a walk in the woods. And if the only thing you bump into is like Bambi, then it's all easy. But if there's a chance that maybe you bump into a bear or something, you know, that changes your entire 
perception of how it is to actually walk around the place, especially if there haven't been bears there for generations. So I think it's I think it's perfectly this kind of a simple element of human psychology. So I think it'll be almost like a near kind of universal issue. Right. That just that makes me curious to see what's going to happen. I mean, you're so involved in the wolf community as well that you know wolves are going to be reintroduced to my state here in Colorado. So what's going to happen? I, I I really don't know. We we have the examples when wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone and and all of the conflict that happened there, and it's still insanely controversial. As opposed to the states that never lost their wolves, and it sounds like similar to the lynx and other large carnivores in Europe, like the places that never left them. They're like we've always lived with them, so this mm-hmm. is just how you live with them. No, sure. I would guess it'll explode into a massive conflict. It will expose all sorts of kind of social divisions and cultural divisions, especially at the start. So mm. I think it's kind of inevitable that it will be a highly controversial process. But probably over time, it will probably calm down. Like, because people seem to be incredibly good at finding things to have conflicts about. <laughs> right. Like, so this, on a totally, on a slight little aside here, in recent years, I've been back in Ireland and doing some consulting on human wildlife conflicts and the species in question has been nothing bigger than a pine martin like it's like your american martin you know right, a little right. thing it weighs like two kilos or something you know smaller than a house cat and because they've been expanding and coming back to places where they have been absent for a century you've had the exact same story you've had you know local hunters complaining that they will exterminate all the game. You've had the farmers coming out saying they're going to kill the cows. You've had the politicians going out claiming that they will threaten the fabric of the local communities. They're a danger to children. The population's out of control. Somebody has to do something. You get the conspiracy series that pine martens are a government experiment to hybridize, you know, otters and uh, least weasels or something to create a super predator. And, of course, they cannot have come back by themselves. They must have been released by conservationists and stuff. And so the exact same story that you will find with kind of wolves, but just scale down to the, the pine mountain. So we can really use our fantasies to create incredible conflicts, even in the absence of anything at all. <laughs> Especially Pine Martin. Oh my gosh, they're so cute. Their little legs, they're adorable. I know. Oh. And you have politicians trying to kind of pull the straight face and saying this is a danger to children, you know. And you just all wow. you can do is really look at them and say, really? You know? <laughs> so I think the next natural question that I would love to ask you is you've written a lot about coexistence. And this is a relatively new term to the field of conservation. So to you, what do you what is coexistence in your eyes from your definition? And do you actually think it's possible to reach? I, I guess we have to take a little step back, first of all, because the the coexistence kind of discourse, it grew out of the conflict discourse. And Conflicts are like the first thing that kind of come to mind when you start talking about kind of predator conservation, especially like in human dominated landscapes, right? And I guess we used a huge amount of time in the 
90s and the early 2000s, trying to get to grips with kind of human wildlife conflicts. You know, like the, the early work was connected very much kind of focusing on the the proximate, the tactile things, like for example, wolves who kill sheep, right? You know, and all the efforts of well, how do you modify livestock husbandry to to prevent this? You know, you had the same issue, say, with bears and garbage. You know, how do you keep the bears out of the garbage bins? How do you stop the bears destroying beehives? All these type of things. And then this work kind of led, I think, to a deeper insight into the importance of social conflicts where even in the absence of an economic conflict, you still have this sort of opposition of kind of rural areas against the return of large predators. So part of that may be based around fear, you know, and, and certainly like a wolf or a bear, they are kind of potentially dangerous, right? They're, they're big predators with teeth. They kill much bigger things for a living, and, and humans are actually pretty wimpy things you know we don't really have much to stand up with so but it's much more than the, those things you know that the research can really identified how these species were becoming symbolic issues linked to much wider discourses of kind of social change mm. you know that sort of you have all of these kind of unconflicts you know between the more modern and more traditional styles between rural and urban between different political values all sorts of different divisions exist there and depending on where we are we pick on different symbolic issues right like the migration is a huge issue right everywhere you know abortion is a big issue in the us you know other countries have their issues that tend to become highly symbolic and wolves and bears especially very quickly tend to get sucked into these wider social and political underbates you know, and awfully much in the same way, actually, as migrants or kind of refugees. You know, it's something from the outside. It's perceived as being threatening. It's a change. And then we immediately blame them for everything else that's going wrong in the world. Hmm. You know, like in a kind of European kind of rural context where there's a huge kind of change in rural life ongoing since 1980s. You know, we blame you know the closing of the post office, the closing of the local school, the fact there's not a priest in the church every Sunday anymore. You know, all of these changes, you know, the arrival of the internet, you know, the fact that your beer costs twice as much, you know, every possible social change you can think of, you tend to blame it on something external. Like the wolf came back and everything went to hell. So you have these kind of symbolic issues, which are not really about the real wolf or the real bear or the real lynx, but about the symbolic one. So by the 2000s, we were understanding that these human wildlife conflicts were a composite of you know real issues and economic issues and these much more wider social symbolic issues. And that was kind of, kind of really good that we now understood what the problem was. The question was, how do you move beyond this? And what do we try to get to? What does kind of sort of a successful conservation situation look like? And I'm guessing that this maturing of our understanding of conflict led us to realize that we were never actually going to solve all conflicts, Hmm. that we could maybe protect sheep better. We could maybe help farmers, you know, use electric fences or adopt livestock guarding dogs and different practices that maybe would bring the loss of livestock down to a minimum. 
you know, and we know how to make garbage bins that the bears can't get into. We know how to protect beehives. So those aspects of conflict you can work with. But these wider social issues, you know, they are never going to change, right? You know, because all of our societies involve kind of political differences. We have different values, you know. We've been having elections, you know, every four or five years for uh, centuries now, and we still haven't agreed on who's going to run the country, you know, because we change and different people have different views. No, same in sport, right? Now, how many Super Bowl finals have you had each year? You still haven't worked out who's the best team, right? <laughs> right. You know, every four years we had the World Cup or we have the the Olympic Games, and we still, you know, compete, try to see who's best. And politics and values are the same. We're never going to agree. You know, what we have maybe done is we found at least kind of superficially less damaging ways to resolve our disagreements but we're not going to agree. And predators will always be one of the elements in these debates, you know, because they are so symbolic that we're bound to just to instrumentalize them in wider political and social debates. So those aspects of the conflict are never really going to be solved, right? They're just something which we have to try to channel them into less damaging and more acceptable channels. So like, for example, in a predator context, we could hope that people could take their disagreement through the democratic channels, rather than, say, going out and illegally killing or illegally reintroducing predators into landscapes. You know, that we try to keep it legal, if we can do. But certainly, we're never going to hope that people are going to agree. So this idea that, you know, or these kind of naive ideas that if you just have enough education, then everyone will love wolves or love mm. bears. You know, that's not going to happen, right? You know, some people are going to love them. Some people are going to hate them. Many people will be totally indifferent, you know. So it means that we're not really moving towards a world where we can even hope to have an absence of conflict. But we hopefully can move to a world where the conflicts are channeled into legal acceptable ways of kind of resolving differences. And that's kind of where this kind of coexistence idea has emerged from. That, you know, okay, this is sort of, if conflict is what we want to try to minimize or move a little bit away from, what do we move towards? And then people talk about kind of coexistence. And ever since that word has appeared, it's been really pulled into many different kind of directions with many people having very different views on it. You know, I think early on, people had a very sort of simplistic idea that coexistence was the absence of conflict, mm. you know, and mm -hmm. kind of, like I said, that's not going to happen, right? So kind of coexistence is now emerging as sort of a kind of dynamic, kind of fluid state where conflicts are at least limited. And that sort of the predators are back on the landscape, sharing space with people. But it's always going to be a fairly messy, complicated, dynamic, kind of interactive thing. It's not going to be a Disney film, let's say, right? It's going to be something much more complicated than that. So I think it's very much an emerging concept that we're trying to fill it with kind of meaning and kind of definition. We realize that it's going to look totally different in totally different places. You know, just because the societies are totally different, the underlying acceptance for these species is going to be totally different. The the extent to which people are concerned about it will kind of vary. You know, you often see in countries which have real issues, 
going on, like real issues of poverty and kind of armed conflict and human rights issues. For them, large predators simply become unimportant. You know, they have much more important things to focus on. In countries which are peaceful and doing well, then these species often become much more important because we don't have anything else to actually focus on. But also you have incredibly different kind of, kind of religious and cultural backgrounds. You know, I worked kind of quite a bit in India and it's totally baffling to understand the level of tolerance and acceptance people have to live in the very close kind of proximity to very dangerous species like tigers, lions, slow bears, elephants, you know, and like to put that into like a European context, we simply shake our heads and say, how can you live so close to these dangerous things? And they just look back and say, well, that's how it is, you know, or the elephants are gods, you know, you can't kill God. Can't kill so, the Ganesh. <laughs> yeah. No, so it's, it's, so this also, I think, has made the whole coexistence concept very difficult to understand because it looks so different in so different places. And it is literally, I think, a work in progress because if you look back through history, we've never really tried it before. You know, we, we've had a one goal through history which has been largely extermination, like not total, not everywhere, but that has been the main goal. And we were really good at achieving that goal. And now for the last maybe 50 years, we've moved over to this new goal of kind of coexistence. And we really are very fresh at working out how that looks. So I think this really much is a work in progress. Yeah, and I'm really curious to see how it will evolve and develop over time as this term coexistence really grows legs and becomes an entire, I see it almost becoming a movement. It's like, how do we live with these predators? And I just, from personal experience, when you were taking us through that and also having traveled the world quite a bit, like what I grew up in a very rural part, part of the United States where even coyotes, you know, there's smaller version of wolves were actually very scary. And just to hear a pack of coyotes cackling actually created a lot of fear and and even me because I didn't know any better because that fear was put into me from my community and it wasn't until I grew up and really started to understand predators that oh my gosh I have literally nothing to fear about coyotes but someone who might not have the same journey as me they will still have that fear of coyotes like where I grew up you know and then also too I go hiking all the time. Like the idea of running into something as scary as like a grizzly bear, like that fear is still real. And so just as you said, it's very recently that we've thought about turning the script and it almost goes against our natural instincts and they're still in there. Like, like these examples, like where I grew up being scared of coyotes and then going on hikes and being understandably scared of accidentally scaring a mama grizzly bear. Like the, that fear is real. And I think that sometimes us that are big advocates of predators just have to remember that sometimes. And then when we go to the table to talk to other people who are fearful, it's like the fear is real. But let's work through it. How can we how can we work through it so that these critters aren't near as scary as they were? And they're not out to kill you as other species, just like, as you said, like when I was in Nepal, there were people that were attacked and killed by tigers. And still the community did not kill those tigers 
that's that's unheard of just like you said from an american or european context like that's what like this tiger killed your uncle or your father and you do not have the whatever to go kill it yourself like that's just incredible yeah but then again i think you have part of that too like it's always a huge kind of focus in north america on grizzly bears but think about black bears Mm-hmm. You know, black bears, actually, statistically speaking, are far more likely to kill people than are grizzly bears. And they're much more involved in more kind of predatory attacks. But black bears, like, you have black bears everywhere. You know, yeah, the everywhere. Whole, the whole East Coast. And you don't really hear, hear much about it. You know, so, again, they've somehow become integrated into this conceptual aspect of normal. You know, right? And that's just become, okay, this is our new normal and okay, it's part of life. They're out there. They can be annoying sometimes. They can be dangerous, rarely, but they're there, but it's normal. So I think we just have this amazing ability to adapt to new normals if we just are given time. And especially, I think, if we are given or if we're not taught to be scared. And that, I think, is one of the other things which I find most kind of disturbing in the way that these animals sometimes become kind of weaponized in political debates is you have some cynical individuals who begin telling people they should be afraid. And the use of fear as a political kind of weapon, like is the cheapest trick in the populist kind of, kind of, kind of politician's playbook is, you know, step one, make people scared. You know, step two, you're the one who can save them from the fear. And you see again and again that these animals are weaponized that way, that people are out there telling people to be scared. And uh, rather than saying, yes, sure, that they can be dangerous, you know, but get it into perspective, they are escalating the amount of fear. And and fear is something that people can respond to very quickly. You know, it's very easy to make a person afraid, and it's very difficult to take that fear away. And it's one of the, I think it really is like kind of, kind of blow the belt as kind of a, a political trick. But certainly we see in many places where certain interest groups use fear to almost build up like a, a mass hysteria in some kind of rural and populations right. where they are genuinely scared, not because of anything objective, but because simply they have been manipulated into this kind of situation. Yes, absolutely. Th- that's the perfect way to describe it. And again, that's why I no longer have as much, I guess judgment is the right term, I think, of people that might come to the table very scared or that might come to these different meetings that like, these wolves are going to kill my livelihood. This links all this, I mean, cause that fear is genuine and like listening to them and having an actual conversation and be like, how can we reach a solution together? Because we need these predators on the landscape. We do, but you don't need to live in fear. So like, how can we, how can we come together? And on that, on a very similar note, I've read a lot about the rewilding movement, especially across Europe. And one of the main pillars of rewilding is bringing back large carnivores to have all trophic levels of a food web of a system intact. Now, since Europe is densely populated and you have worked so much in different countries, is this 
feasible? Like, is this rewilding movement going to be enough for predators? Or what do you think is the rewilding movement's role in all of this and of your work and what you're seeing? I, I think it depends totally on the meaning that you put into the word kind of rewilding. Like the conservation of European predators goes back over a century. Like you know, some of the the early legislation was like, for example, in Sweden, that they introduced kind of some very constrictive hunting legislation on bears, like back in the 1920s and 30s, which did not kind of protect the bear from hunting, but they regulated hunting with the intention to ensure that bears remained on the landscape. So bears especially were sort of, I think, an, an early candidate for legislation which was designed to try to find ways for them to persist. You know, and then moving forward, we've had like these reintroductions on links and things that started in the 70s, you know, motivated by hunters and then very early conservation work in the 80s. And this was all before anyone had even invented the word conservation biology. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly before anyone had even dreamed that the world can uh, be wilding, which only appeared like in the mid to late 90s. So conservation has very old roots, you know. And if you speak to many, especially the hunters, like for example, they will say, well, they've always been doing conservation. Because in any work where they have been managing wildlife in a sustainable way, they would articulate, well, that is actually a form of conservation. And especially if you look in Eastern Europe, probably in like most of the period from after World War II, the hunters there had embraced the larger predators as game species into their sort of set of species that they cared about. So it was like the deer species, it was wild boar, it was bears as a highly valued game species. Then wolves are sort of, okay, a slightly tolerated one, and lynx is something that wasn't quite so important. But the bears, especially though, were part of that game species. And they would have articulated that they were conserving them while hunting them. And certainly they persisted on landscape in Eastern Europe all through that post-World War II period, right through to our modern times. So that was a totally different articulation of conservation. So, and most of the early legislation was a simple species kind of conservation stuff. You know, like in Europe, we have two international pieces of pan of pan European legislation. We have the Berne Convention from 1979 and the Habitat Directive from 1992. But these are like equivalents of the Endangered Species Act. Mm, mm-hmm. you know? And these, like the Endangered Species Act, were species conservation legislation. Now, there was very little ecological sort or conservation science in them. It was an effort to conserve iconic species that people found to be important. You know, so this stuff goes back way before the science of conservation appeared, right? So we've been doing this for a very long time, and then rewilding kind of appeared in let's say the early two thousands, right? As a began to become mainstreamed as an approach, and at the start it certainly did have this kind of quite formal meeting, you know, meaning linked to like these trophic cascades. You know, this assumption that the predators have a strong effect on the prey, the prey affect everything else and so on. But since then, the term has spread out to basically become just another word for conservation. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you see it being used again and again. And in many different contexts, it's had totally different meanings. Like, so in the, the North American context, it was a focused on predators. So more predators would mean less prey, would mean more other species. But in its origins in the European context, because it, it grew up in sort of, I think, like, uh, especially in a Dutch, maybe partially German world, their focus was actually on bringing back the prey species, that they wanted more herbivores to have a stronger impact on vegetation. So it was the same discourse, all about top-down processes, but for them, somehow they had this ecological understanding that predators weren't really important and that the herbivores were everything. And they wanted more herbivores to have less trees, to have more open landscape. Whereas in the Yellowstone context, it was more wolves to have less deer to have more trees. Right. You have totally different conceptualizations of even as to what you're trying to achieve, hmm. all under the same banner of kind of rewilding. So it's a very, it's become especially a very ambiguous concept, right? Which doesn't really mean much anymore. It's viewed positively by the public because it's got a kind of a kind of a sexy spin to it mm-hmm. you know and it's always nice with fresh ideas and if a word captivates the public's imagination then w- why not you know and it's all about doing conservation but in terms of if you can expect these type of you know top-down effects like the Canelison story in the European context there's not a chance because the human influence on the ecosystem is so total right that no we affect the prey species directly by hunting you know and we have all these kind of vehicle collisions which not probably kill a million ungulates each year we have a very strong influence on the habitat because we're doing agriculture we're doing forestry we're grazing livestock in many cases we're hunting the predators ourselves so with all of this human influence on every level in the trophic system, you can't expect bringing uh, some wolves or bears or lynx back into the landscape to overrule that signature of the humans. So certainly they will have an effect. They will make some changes, but these will be totally drowned out by the human influence. And the same goes for most of North America. So like the, the Yilson story, may be relevant for the Yellowstone, but sort of, and maybe some other national parks, but elsewhere, you know, it's kind of, if you bring back wolves to Dakota or to, you know, Ohio or something, you know, it's not suddenly going to magically take away the huge human influence, which is going through agriculture and hunting and everything else. So I think there's a, there's a huge amount of, kind of naivety here in terms of the transferability of the Yellowstone story to the world outside. You know, the Yellowstone story, it may be true. It certainly makes a good story. And it's been a very interesting story to captivate the public's imagination, which is really great. But we really need to be, I think, kind of, kind of realistic about the transfer value of this to other contexts. There was one other aspect of the story too, which was sort of interesting to those of us who have slightly grayer beards, is that during the 1970s and 80s, there was a massive amount of research in, in North America on predation, like especially in like Alaska, in Canada, Minnesota. 
trying to understand what effect wolves have on prey species. And there were so many really early projects out there, you know, really pioneer projects from the 70s onwards, using all of the new scientific tools that the people had, and even running some fairly big experiments. And the conclusion from all this work was that, well, the effect of kind of top predators on prey is very difficult to predict. It's mm. totally context-dependent. You know, it's very different if you're on the North Slope of Alaska or in Minnesota. You know, it depends on if it's wolves or bears. And sometimes the effect is massive. Sometimes the effect is hard to, to detect. But then suddenly, after the, the, the Yellowstone story led to the foundation of this kind of rewilding, suddenly all of that contextuality fell apart. And suddenly it was told it's always top-down. The predators always have this effect. And that mm. totally clashed with what predator scientists had spent 20 to 30 years actually trying to grapple with. We said, well, actually, it's incredibly complicated to predict how important the predators actually are. So sometimes they really are instrumental. Other times they're totally drowned out in the effect of habitat or climate or other things. So I think in a way this sort of this overgeneralization is very dangerous you know it gives the public false expectations and in a way it's also bad science you know when you're extrapolating something beyond its context so it's a very controversial term right and so in its truest sense i don't think it has any kind of relevance for us at all but for this more general sense of you know bringing back a wilder nature you know of trying to lessen know the human control of everything you know just making a bit more space for a little bit more wildness you know then it's a fantastic idea and it's really captivating for, for the public and scientists so i guess the answer to your question depends totally on what meaning we put into that word mm -hmm. yeah context is so interesting isn't it and mm -hmm. like just like you said i, I really love that you made the comparison to what just the exact same term and the exact same idea, how differently it can be applied depending on the goals of the conservationist or whoever's leading the project. So that was, God, that was so good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. really taking us well, through that. Well, it's a couple of, uh, there's probably two more elements in here too, which I think are quite important to consider. And one of them is it creates a discourse where you feel that you can adopt a kind of a hands-off management. That this idea that you know the predators will engage in these ecological processes and try to restore this so-called kind of uh, naturalness in a way leads to an expectation that you can have these predators back in our landscapes without actually managing them. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that when you're putting these animals back into very crowded landscapes, there's always going to be a need for management, you know? And the extent of human management will vary massively. Like in some countries, these predators are still managed as kind of game species. In other ones, they're protected, but there's always even then going to be a need for some intervention. You're always going to have some bears who simply cannot be taught to stay away from garbage. Right. You know, who will engage in very risky behavior that puts them in situations where somebody might get hurt. 
you're always going to have some wolves who will learn how to access livestock. They will learn how to get past all of the protection that you've put in place. All who will begin to adopt kind of behavior towards people, which is simply too dangerous, you know, or they are too fond of grabbing pet dogs of people's leads in front of them. And there's always going to be a need for intervention. You know, it can be highly targeted, but it has to happen. So creating an expectation of some type of naturalness independent of intervention makes it much harder then to explain why you have to go in and intervene. Another aspect of the rewilding, I think, concerns its acceptance in the rural areas. Because if you get into the rural mindset, people have been living and farming and hunting and doing forestry in these landscapes for generations. And the work of their families and through all of these different generations has been to transform a landscape, right? So they created a field. How do you create a field? You clear a forest, right? That is a generational project, especially before we had all of this kind of mechanized stuff. So there is centuries of history involved in the human modification of our landscapes. And this is something that the local people are highly proud of, you know, mm-hmm. and it's one thing that you can go to these areas and you can say, well, okay, can we integrate some biodiversity into your landscape? And m- most often they're happy to do this, you know, to find ways to ha- find farming techniques, which let the flowers come and the butterflies come, you know, you can say, well, what about deer? Well, yeah, deer we can hunt, you know, and so it's nice to have moose around or white-tailed deer in your context everywhere or roe deer in our context. So they can expand their construction of landscape to include wildlife. You can sometimes push this quite hard with the predators. And at least in many parts of Eastern Europe, you know, there was a very strong acceptance for the presence of bears and wolves in landscapes. Maybe they didn't love them, but certainly there was like a tolerance of it. But then when you come in with this rewilding idea, you're not just asking people to live in the presence of wildlife, but you're changing the fundamental way that, if, that you view the entire landscape. So suddenly that field is not a good field, which is a cultural kind of monument to heritage, but that field suddenly needs to be rewilded to a forest, right? And then you're telling people to undo what generations have done. And that is creating a very hostile discourse for local people. Rather than saying, well, expanding your your kind of construction of your home and your landscape to allow wildlife to live in it, you're saying, well, actually, we don't value your landscape and your cultural history and your attachment to it because we want to wild it. And that means undoing something. And maybe you can do this on a local scale. You know, perhaps you do find some individual landowners who value this, but on the wider landscape, on a huge scale, you're really confronting people with something that's totally alien to what they have been building up over um, generations. So it can be viewed as a very hostile discourse from the perspective of the, the rural areas. Yeah, so thank you so much for taking me through that. And the context of 
rewilding as it is across the pretty much the world and how we're all viewing it differently, like depending on where you are, will depict on how rewilding, quote unquote, is even done. Mm. So you've been doing this now for decades and you've been studying these predators and across different even landscapes across the entire mm. continent. What are you seeing as the future then for predators? Do you have any hope? I mean, I hope you do. You're still doing what you're doing, but what's the future for our predators in Europe? Well, I think the future is incredibly, well, there's a potential future which could be really good for them. You know, like the changes that we have just seen just in the small slice of time I've been be working on them. You know, it's like, I guess it's been, what, maybe 25 years since I've been working on them. And back then, like in the, the 1990s, if someone had told us, you know, that we were going to face a situation where we had wolves living in, in Germany, we'd have wolves in Denmark, wolves in the Netherlands, wolves back in France, nobody would have believed it. You know, it just seemed like sort of impossible dreams. You say, yeah, yeah, sure, you know, and pigs will fly and there'll be a couple of blue moons in the same months, you know. But now we actually are, are, are sitting here in a situation where Germany probably has around one and a half thousand wolves. You know, they say have like 150 wolf packs. So like this is an incredible large number of wolves and this is not even finished because if you look at the map they actually really only occupied maybe a quarter or a third of germany and there's more space for them and like we have had wolves breeding in netherlands we have had wolves breeding in denmark france has got hundreds of wolves back again so so much has changed just in 25 years you know like kind of links and bears the changes have been a bit slower and it's not kind of positive in every direction, but generally populations are holding kind of their own or expanding with a few exceptions. So the overall picture coming from large carnivore conservation is that these species are actually doing really, really well, despite everything that we're throwing at them, despite climate change and all of the construction of highways and railroads and border fences and the intensification of agriculture and all these kind of ongoing changes which are being so negative for much of biodiversity, actually not stopping large predators. So we're seeing this kind of slightly paradoxical view where the species which to many people are icons of wilderness are thriving in a really industrialized, urbanized, human-dominated world. And lots of the smaller little innocent things are the ones which actually are struggling. So the threat of the future in, in Europe actually looks remarkably good if we can tolerate it. And so they've learned how to live kind of with us, right? The bottom line is, are we able to live with them? Will we accept them? Are we willing to have them as our neighbors? And then this kind of spins back a bit then into how we talk about predator conservation. And we're certainly not going to achieve a kind of continental scale, kind of Yellowstone situation, right? You know, so that's why I think the kind of rewilding discourse, it's, it's, it's interesting, but and it may have some local relevance with specific sites, but it's not 
a discourse that you can upscale to a continent. And this is where that kind of coexistence kind of story comes back in again, is that, you know, the even if we're struggling to define the details of kind of coexistence, the central elements of it are that the predators and the people are in that landscape, sharing the space. And that means people are doing the things they've always done, right? There are people in that landscape who are conducting agriculture, they're conducting forestry, they are recreating, they're hunting, they're engaging in naturalist activities or everything that people do in a landscape, but in the same space as predators. So it's not some type of wilderness state of untouched nature and predators, but it's simply just reintegrating these animals back into a multi-use human-dominated landscape. And this is a totally different vision of conservation than what you would kind of pick up from, from the more kind of purest forms of, kind of rewilding or even for most of the classic kind of conservation biology images. You know, there's, this is a real compromise between different goals. You have nature, but humans are influencing it at every level. But that does not necessarily mean that you cannot have nature. It is a slightly different form of it. And then it's a totally different construction and a different discourse around it. The people are legitimate. People belong. People are allowed to do things. They can cut a tree. They can plant a crop. They can shoot a deer. You know, they can go jogging and hiking. They can have a campfire. You know, it's people can live their lives, but you're just sharing space with other animals. And this is not a very common discourse in classic conservation. Because kind of conservation really tries to alienate people and push them kind of to the margins, right? But this kind of coexistence thing, it's really embracing people and accepting, well, you can like them or not, but they're there, you know, and they're not going anywhere. And this, do we have to find a way to get it kind of to exist? That sort of then also leads a bit into this kind of second aspect of coexistence, because the coexistence of people and wildlife is kind of the obvious part of it. But if we think back a bit to these kind of conflicts, which I was, I'm talking about earlier, and about how people are disagreeing, you know, about wolves or how they're using wolves and bears as components of wider kind of political arguments, then the, probably the most tricky part of coexistence is how do you get different people to coexist with each other? So like the wolves and the bears and lynx, they come back and they can live with us. You know, they don't really care what channel we're watching on TV or what political party we vote for, or what our taste of music is. But people get very, very upset about people who have different views and different approaches. And we've seen so often that these species have become kind of flashpoints for conflicts between different groups of people. You know, they become kind of symbolic of wider kind of social issues. They become linked up into to politics and simply they get caught up in battles over different values like for example hunting you know is it okay to shoot a wolf or not you know is that a good thing and people often have very polarized views about this you know or is it okay to shoot a bear or when you shoot a bear you know i think everyone accepts you can shoot it in self-defense you know most people might accept that maybe if you have a dangerous bear or conflict bear who's breaking into garbage and creating hassle okay then that can be killed but can you kill a bear for recreation or for sport or for a trophy or for an economic gain? Now, people have very different points of view here. And the battle lines and the temperature 
in conflicts between two groups of people who probably agree that bears are a good thing, but simply how we should relate to them, these become incredibly intense battles. So finding ways to mediate between different groups of people who have different points of view, both of which are probably very legitimate points of view, but are polar opposites, and how you get these people to share space is much harder than actually getting the animals into the landscape. So the coexistence really is this complicated thing with this human wildlife part and this very touchy human human part of it. Oh my gosh, I could not agree more. I've said it so many times on this podcast that conservation is people management. Hmm? Wildlife is amazing at being themselves, hmm? going off doing their things, reproducing, proliferating everything. It's us that seems to have the problem mm -hmm. in bringing in all of these conversations, these viewpoints, these stakeholders to have a conversation. Sometimes that's like the hardest, scariest part. It's just like, it's not going out and researching the bears or the wolves or the lynx. It's like, how do we get these people that all have very different viewpoints in the same room and talk to each other? Because yeah. we all agree that yes, this animal is here. But how do we come to some sort of conclusion on how it's going to stay here? Yeah, and I agree. And it is very hard. And you often have to kind of just get your head around the fact that you're having to share space with people who are totally different to you, you know, who have totally different values and ideas, but they have every right to have different ideas. Yes. You know, just because we're scientists or a conservationist doesn't give us any better values, you know, than other people. And we have to accept, okay, different people have different ideas and somehow we have to find a way to compromise or to find a way, find a way just to resolve our differences. Absolutely. I advocate for that all the time. Just like if anybody, if they go onto their social media platform and everybody is saying the exact same thing they are, then like maybe they need to get out a little bit more and start having more conversations that might make you uncomfortable, but you'll probably learn more than you could ever imagine. And that most of us on this planet all want the same thing. We want better lives. We want a better planet. We want to raise a, fam a healthy family and give them an even better generation than what we have. We can pretty universally say that that's what the majority of people want, but the values, just like you said, that we were raised upon might make that answer to that, to get there differently. And so by default, you know, I, I don't know what it's like to have a herd of sheep on a landscape where now a lynx is being returned on, like returned to the landscape. I don't know what that feels like to have possibly my flock attacked. Like, I don't, I don't know. I have no clue what that feels like. And so just keeping that in mind when we have these conversations about these with these different stakeholders, that their voice is just as important as us, as the scientists, as the advocates, like everybody needs a seat at the table because all of our voices are deserved of being heard. I think that kind of many kind of conservationists fall into a kind of a, a trap in, in that they they often don't question the underlying premises of kind of conservation. That you no, know, you spend years studying you know ecology and conservation and how to conserve kind of biodiversity, and I think there's too little attention focused on the underlying premises, which may not be kind of universal. In that maybe not everybody accepts that 
all biodiversity is equally good or that it should be conserved in the same way every place. You know, that your national park maybe should be different to your multi-use landscape. And there are premises, and some people will say, well, actually, maybe we don't want to conserve everything at all. Maybe we only want to conserve some things, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I think we find it very difficult when we're confronted with that for the first time when you move from, say, academia to the real world. And you realize that people actually have very different premises. You know, they're not giving cat got the same starting point as, uh, as you. So you're s jumping in into technical of how to do it. And then suddenly you confront people who would say, well, do we actually want to do that? Hmm. And I think that sort of, so we need to be made aware that I think the premises of our disciplines and our professions are actually subjective. And, you know, that we are highly motivated about them. And the last decades have seen an awful lot of legislation which has endorsed these kind of values. But there is still a subjectivity to it. And it's a fairly recent issue. Now, the people that we interact with out there in the landscape, now anybody over maybe 60, 70, grew up in a world where the government was paying them to kill predators. Right. And now they're being fined if they do it. And so it's within a generation that this has happened. And I think we really need us to be sensitive to the fact of how quickly things have changed. And, you know, you know, things change, like people do change and values change, but it takes time. And I think pushing too hard and too fast, then you can risk having a backlash. And mm -hmm. um, so I think in this whole game, we really need to play a long game. And we have that kind of luxury because these species are not going to go extinct kind of tomorrow morning. You know, for, for people working on other species, other ecosystems, it's much more of a crisis. You know, right. they really are on these kind of front lines with extinction looming in front of them. But for us, at least, we have the luxury that these species are robust. They exist in large kind of populations. The general trends are positive. So we actually have that luxury of being able just to say, OK, let's take it slowly. Let's find our way forward here. You know, we don't have all the answers, but let's kind of work it out. But just take our time with it and try and build a kind of a longer lasting, sustainable relationship, you know, and it's better to take a bit longer to get to a more stable goal than being too quick and risking a, a backlash. Because I think in many places we do see a conservation backlash from yeah. uh, rural areas, you know, and it's very easy to understand why, because it's come so quickly, so fast, and in, in a way, quite arrogantly too, in a way, or at least it can be perceived as being arrogant, even if it's not, you know, it can be perceived that way. And we do need, I think, patience and a little bit more kind of humility and understanding. And, and we have that luxury position that we can actually adopt that. Yes, yes. And I've just come to find that this, the further I get in my career and I meet more people and I travel the world more that I, I'm getting more of that type of mindset because I also think as the younger generation, we go through academia and we learn in this current climate that it's very hard to understand that just a couple decades ago, the story that was being told about these exact same animals was completely different, just like you said, completely different. And how can someone that's been like going through their career now be expected to fully understand what that is like if they don't have these conversations like you're talking about with people that have been through this and have seen things 
and just I would love to flip it just a little bit here and maybe go to you for a second with that talking about like the younger generation that's coming up and and going going to be like the next round of conservationists conservation biologists and the advocates of all of this what keeps you going like why are you still doing what you're doing and putting all this good work out there what is what's your why what is your motivation wow i guess <laughs> that's a hard question so there's multiple strands to it so one of them is highly highly well because most of it is highly personal so personally i just like living in a world and a landscape which has more wildness to it you know like it doesn't have to be a primal wilderness but that can be nice too like it's, it's nothing nicer than spending a holiday in kind of yellowstone or denali or, or, or somewhere right you know but that's not life right that's a holiday that's into the exceptions but it's very nice being in a, a landscape and just being surprised by wild nature you know and like, it can be as simple as a fox you know or a badger or, or a deer you know it's little glimpse into a wilder nature sort of like a parallel world out there which humans don't control you know and when you upscale that you know to maybe you get a glimpse of a, a bear track or you find a bear poop you know sitting in the path or something you know or you see a wolf track or maybe by some chance you catch a glimpse of a predator you know it totally transforms your experience of, of that landscape there's something out there it's that little tingling feeling in the back, you know, yes. it's a wilder nature, you know, and to me, that is a positive value. But I certainly understand other people who view this as being something quite kind of threatening too. Now, like, so in a European context, I would never say I'm kind of frightened of meeting a bear. But then if I'm, say, in Alaska, then I immediately have a totally different kind of reaction because right. it's not our bears, it's your bears. And suddenly you feel, oh my God, it's bear cracks, bear poop, oh my God, you know. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly you've got your hand on the pepper spray, you yes. know. And, but when it's our bears, you know, you, you never carry pepper spray in Europe. You know, we aren't even really? allowed to, you know. So it's sort of, and because those are our bears and we know them, you know. So I can understand, I can see kind of both sides of this game, you know. The So certainly that kind of fascination for wildlife is there and this has been kind of with humans for kind of, kind of millennia like you know in in europe we have these these cave paintings you know which can go back you know 25 30 35 000 years you know right back to even before humans were actually modern humans and in these kind of cave paintings People didn't paint pictures of their girlfriend or their children or of a blueberry or an acorn or something, but they painted pictures of wild animals, you know, of the big mammals, the charismatic megafauna, you know, it was bison and wild cattle or lions or bears or reindeer and red deer and wild horses, you know, and like this was it had no utilitarian purpose, you know, you don't crawl a couple of kilometers down into a cave you know, without ropes, without torches, without flashlights, you know, to paint a picture of a wild horse on a cave wall for any utilitarian purpose. It 
would happen because these animals meant something spiritual, cultural, who knows what. But it was certainly was not any logical reason. And I think this kind of fascination for these big kind of charismatic animals certainly has, has kind, of, kind of carried over into our modern times. You know, that they mean something to us more than what they should do from an economic or any other point of view. You know, they fascinate us still. I also am quite kind of motivated because I'm quite fascinated by people. I actually find people interesting, you know, especially different people who have different mindsets and stuff. And sometimes it can be incredibly frustrating. Sometimes you can really struggle to grasp it, but it is intrinsically interesting to sit down and actually just talk to people with different kind of realities, different experiences and things. And you don't have to agree, but it can still be a fascinating experience. So that also provides a motivation and the complexity of our relationship with these large predators really brings out a complexity of human kind of reaction to it. You know, if you start interviewing people about butterflies, well, people like butterflies. Yeah, pretty butterfly. You know, no one disagrees. You talk about wolves or lynx or bears, and suddenly you get the whole spectrum of different opinions and views and meanings. And that is actually really a fascinating part as well. So certainly those twin fascinations do motivate me. And then I think all of us in this kind of business, well, all of us would like to, you know, kind of leave the world in a slightly better situation than it is now, you know? And that's why it's very nice to work on species we actually are doing well, so that you can actually somehow try to present a discourse away from doom and gloom, and you can actually start talking about kind of possibilities. And you can take this, you know, this, this word Anthropocene, you know, right? You know, which in so many conservation contexts is sort of viewed as the definition of doom and gloom. Right. So humans have messed up everything, you know. And okay, yes, that's not anything to argue with. But there's a flip side to the Anthropocene. And it means that we actually have control of not everything, but almost everything. And that we're not in a his part of history where we are slaves to nature but we can shape nature and we can make pretty much whatever nature we like. So we can continue trashing it, you know, and turning it into like an apocalyptic kind of a film set that would work for Mad Max movies, <laughs> you know, or yes. else we could actually turn it around. And we actually have the power and the knowledge to actually make the Anthropocene into a wilder Anthropocene, if we wish. So we're not passive anymore. We are active and we are in the driving seat. And that gives us opportunity and it gives us responsibility. And the fact that we have been succeeding very well, both in Europe and kind of North America, in the conservation of large predators and large herbivores and all of this kind of charismatic kind of megafauna, much more so than with the smaller species, shows what we can do if we set our mind to it. And I think these pieces, in a way, let you then reconstruct a bit of the Anthropocene to, okay, it has, it can be really, really bad on an unprecedented scale, or it can actually be something positive. And that even if we are 8 billion people and counting, 
we can still actually fit an awful lot of nature into that planet. So it's up to us. We have a choice. And that the doom and gloom and the kind of the pessimism, that's not a natural law which is imposing that. It's something social, it's something political, it's something that we can in theory influence if we put um, our minds to it. So I think that also kind of motivates me to try to produce this more positive story. Mm. Oh my gosh, I'm feeling so inspired. That was so good. <laughs> so with everything you just said, I think maybe one way to put the the final cap, the the whipped cream on the ice cream, you know, just like the, the final cream. Yes, the cherry. The yes, the cherry on the whipped cream on the ice cream. Is there a message or some sort of piece of advice or anything that if anybody listening walks away with just one thing, what would you want that to be? One thing? Can I have two? You can have two, of course. We got two cherries. Two cherries. <laughs> so... One of them would have been to cultivate fascination. You know, never lose fascination. You know, for wildlife, for people, for everything, you know. Be fascinated. Keep that going. Nurture it, you know. Stay a kid, you know. Don't grow up in that context. I guess the second piece of this story would be that people have to get political. And that if we are going to turn things around, we're not limited by technical knowledge anymore, right? We're limited by political will. And that means that people have to get across to the people in power, if it's the economic power or social power or political power, that nature and wildlife matters to them that they do not accept that we sacrifice it all the time in favor of other things. And that means we have to get political because most of us probably who are listening to this do live in countries with some semblance of a democratic structure, right? No, not everybody has that kind of luxury, but people in Europe, North America have some form of democracy. People have a voice, people have a vote. And even if power is maybe very asymmetrically skewed, right? The vote still sits on one person, one vote. And that means people do have the possibility to change politicians. And we need to really get it across that the politics of the past is no longer acceptable. The Anthropocene needs new politics. And I really think everybody has to get across that thing. It doesn't have to be mm. technical or scientific. It just has to be we care about nature and that we will vote according to lead, lead, lead to this. And I really think that's, this is also something which many scientists don't like doing, right? Right. We, we don't like to get political. Like we like to hide in our ivory tower and talk about factual issues and things and values and politics do scare us, you know, but I think everybody has to get involved there. Oh my gosh, I could not believe, I could not agree more with that. That's uh, my journey has also shown me that as well, that if you're not involved in politics, well, at the end of the day, it is government regulations that decide whether or not, how wildlife is managed and whether or not they're going to stay on the landscape. So if you want them here, your voice matters. And 
to use it however you see is fit and your values and everything. So John, I feel like I could talk to you literally all day and I hope to and pray that one day we can have a whiskey or a beer together, preferably in your neck of the woods, because I have yet to visit that area. So that's high on my list. But if anybody listening would love to get in touch with you or maybe see more of your work because your work is quite extensive, what is the best way for someone to find more about you and maybe even reach out if they want to learn more? Well, the easy way to get contact is to send an email. You know, it's order. You can always kind of put a letter into an envelope and, put, and post it, <laughs> but email works faster today. Otherwise, there's quite a lot of our European experiences on a website of the IUCN organizations called the Large Carnival Initiative for Europe. So it's on www.lcie.org. And there you pretty much have a very detailed insight into what's been happening in a European context. Mm. There's many links to different projects. There's a huge library of kind of resources. The play was there. There's maps and basic information. So I think that is probably your best kind of first stop to get an insight into the, the European carnival scene. And that's great. And of course, anyone listening, head on over to rebotology.com because I will have all of those in the show notes for John's specific episode. But again, thank you. I cannot wait to share your knowledge with the rest You're of the world. Welcome. Okay, awesome. thank you. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>